Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So this passage that was just read from... 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. Most of us probably know it because most of us have probably attended a wedding. And it is the famous wedding passage. And usually whenever you hear it read at, at a wedding, it's, you know, everybody hears it. And even those who aren't particularly religious, even those who may not even like Christianity, at least when this passage is read, everybody kind of smiles and it's like, ah. Oh. Isn't that so beautiful? What a beautiful reading. And I can understand it. It's a brilliant, beautiful prose. Orchestrated and crafted marvelously as an ode to love. But the thing is, is that uh, the first audience in Corinthian, or in Corinth, they probably wouldn't have had the same response. I mean, in spite of its beauty, it's actually a very scathing critique. Now, to understand a little bit of maybe what is going on in this passage, you need to understand a little bit about Corinth. It's a a very distinct and unique city. It was a metropolitan city. It was a a center of commerce and trade. It was actually a a first century BC model for urban planning. I mean, it was an old Greek city, but they, they had it demolished and rebuilt around 40 B.C., planned out. And because the old was demolished and it was new, it was a place that you could go, and even if you were nothing in your hometown, you could become something. I mean, at least if you were a citizen and you were, had the freedom and a little bit of means, as long as you had the intelligence, the smarts, the abilities, then you could go to Corinth and you could make a name for yourself. You can make your family something. And this culture that was created in Corinth, this culture of clamoring for status and personal achievement, the frantic desire to make sure that you're networking with the right groups and the right Corinthian country clubs, playing whatever golf looked like back then. But see, this, this mentality, this striving, this clamoring to define yourself, to make yourself something, to, to, to step up in the social ladder, ended up infiltrating into the church. Ended up creating a distinctly Corinthian brand of Christianity. And what ended up happening is, is it led to a church that was extremely gifted, but deeply divided and corrupted. And so we have Paul writing a letter to this church to confront the division and the corruption within the church by constantly pointing them back to the gospel. And in the later part of this letter, he kind of interrupts his letter to the Corinthians by writing this ode to love. Essentially, getting to the heart of their issue. And I think as Paul provides the antidote to the sickness 
at the heart of the Corinthian church, his words provide a poignant and at times what might feel uncomfortable to us, remedy for some of the ills that affect all of us today. So I want to look at this passage and primarily focus on the first seven verses. I'm going to allude to to the, the closing verses, but I want to emphasize the first seven verses by looking at the necessity of love, the personality of love, and then conclude by asking, how can we love? So we start with the necessity of love. In our reading, we, we see in 1 through 3, he uses himself as an example, but he's actually speaking to the Corinthians about themselves and gives a list of things that if he has these things but not love, it's nothing. In verses 1 through 2, he points out tongues and prophecy, spiritual insight and knowledge, and then faith to even perform miracles. And he was purposeful in choosing these particular ones because these were the gifts that the Corinthians lifted up and held in the highest regard. These were the ones that they clamored for. These are the ones that really impressed them. These were the gifts that if you had these, you were somebody in the church. I want to look at a few of these gifts real fast. First, you have tongues of men and angels. And there's this aspect of the way he's phrasing this that we see that this is this is a has a spiritual or supernatural element to it. But it also connects to the gift of eloquence, the ability to use language. And he says it's a noisy gong or clanging cymbals. Actually, the Greek translation should not be noisy gong, but just noisy brass. Essentially pointing out that if you have all eloquence and ability to speak, even if you have the spiritual gift of speaking tongues without love, you're just a deafening, pointless, meaningless sound that is used to draw attention to yourself. And then prophecy. Often prophecy within Scripture is tied to, to what we call preaching, the proclamation of God's Word. But prophecy is also the, the not just proclamation of God's Word, but actually hearing from God. Hearing what God has for His people to hear and the ability to powerfully proclaim that to His children. And He says, understand all mysteries and knowledge. See, this language is not just referring to intellect, to someone's just ability to think. You know, like we say, like somebody's too smart for their own good. Like he's not pointing to it in that way, but what he's actually speaking of is specifically theological knowledge and the understanding of the gospel, the understanding of God's redemptive activity in the world. Because if you remember, Paul often refers to the gospel as the mystery of God revealed. And then he says, faith has to move mountains. Now some commentaries, uh, commentators think that this is pointing to Jesus' statement, that if you had faith, you could move mountains. Other commentators don't think that that's necessarily the case, but is instead emphasizing a, a, a deep confidence and certainty that is at times accompanied by even miraculous realities. And I think the latter is true because I don't think that this is in reference to salvific faith. Primarily because of what he says all these things are. 
says that without love, he's nothing. Without love, all those who possess these things are nothing. And this word indicates the idea of being lost. Separated from the source of real life. To be no thing, to have no being, to be unknown. I think it's more tying to something that Jesus said that Paul is reflecting. He gives a warning. He said, in the end, there will be some who say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? Have we not performed miracles? Have we not done all of these things in your name? And he said, I will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you, or depart from me, for you are nothing. And if you notice in this, he doesn't indicate in any way that the tongues of men or angels that he speaks of was not a genuine gift from God. He's not alluding to false prophecy, but he is clearly making a reference to someone who is hearing from God and proclaiming God's word powerfully to God's people. As I said, it's not worldly knowledge and insight. And there's no indication that he's speaking of false faith. And yet he says, without love, nothing. We're nothingness. We're devoid of true being. And I think this is a hard word. But it's an important one for us even today. That one can have genuine, authentic gifts. Can be used in mighty ways for the ministry of the Lord, for the sake of the church, for the proclamation of the gospel. And yet be absolutely empty and nothing in the sight of God. There's a deep danger in relying on one's giftedness or accomplishments for the Lord. Status in the church. As what marks us and defines our relation to our God. And then Paul moves from gifts that often make one a person of prominence, somebody who is revered within the church, to acts of piety and devotion. He speaks of giving away everything or delivering his body over to be burned. I think it's really interesting that, that he chose these two because it's perfect for our current context because he seems to be focusing on two, um, th- two like virtues that are held in the highest regard by kind of the two sides within the church today, the left and the right. Often the left will revere those who are willing to sacrifice and give everything for the sake of the poor, for the disenfranchised, standing for justice, caring for those in need. And in the right, there's reverence for those who are willing to make a bold stand for orthodoxy no matter what it costs. Willing to be martyred for the faith. But then, he says that without love, I have no reward. And if you read elsewhere in Corinthians, when Paul speaks of a reward in this letter, he's speaking of eternal reward. He's speaking of our inheritance 
in the kingdom of God. It's challenging. It should be shocking in some ways. But actually, Paul's words are nothing new. What Paul's actually doing here is just reiterating the core message Christ proclaimed throughout his earthly ministry. And much of Jesus' critique of the Pharisees, we have to remember that his issue with the Pharisees was not primarily what their, their actions. A lot of what they were doing was actually good. They were being faithful to Torah. But what did Jesus say about them? He said that they're whitewashed tombs. Look pretty on the outside, but dead on the inside. They focused on washing the outside of the cup, but instead it's the inside that needed to be cleaned. Jesus is the one who, who answered the debate and said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. All your heart, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor yourself. He defines the fullness of God's law and what we are called to be with love. Remember Jesus who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, Jesus was not saying this as in, you will prove your love to me by what you do, by your obedience. No, what he's saying is that if your love was perfected, your obedience would as well. Because Jesus understood and recognized that the core of our problem was a problem of the heart. And in that, our redemption or our perfection is the reorientation of our most foundational affections. Essentially, the tattoo that brands us as Christ is one that is on our hearts. It's the mark of regenerated affections. It's the mark of love. And what Jesus was saying was just actually drawing out what was forgotten that was at the core of the Old Testament promise. The sign of the inauguration of God's kingdom. The coming of the Messiah. The future promised hope of God's redemption was tied to this act, this sign. Sometimes it was referred to as the circumcision of the heart. He says that he will take our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. At the end of Deuteronomy, when God laid out all of his law, he interestingly goes and says to the, the Hebrew people, I've just given you the law, and you're not going to keep it. You're going to be sent into exile. But one day, I will bring you out of exile, and one day, I will put a new heart in you, and one day, you will love me, and once you love me, you will obey my commandments. To try to pull an Ethan here, I want to make a reference to an 80s one-hit wonder, Soft Cell. <laughs> we have tainted love. And the mark of our redemption is not moral transformation. It's not uh, theological acumen. It's not missional accomplishments. It's not piety nor social justice. It's the regeneration of our affections. It's the love of God being manifested in us. I like using this example because I think it captures it well. Because the reality is, is we can do many, many loving things out of a perverse love. 
So imagine that you have a guy who, who is a, a prominent womanizer. I mean, he likes to hook up with as many girls as possible. Now, deep down, the reason why he wants to do that is because he wants to prove himself a man. He wants to, he wants to be superior. He wants to be significant. He wants to know that he's better than all the other guys in his circle. And then he goes to church. And then all of a sudden, he, when he goes to church, he gets deeply into theology. I mean, like this dude knows Reformed theology in and out. His systematics are tight. He goes off and learns Greek and Hebrew and even Aramaic. And then starts teaching Bible studies. Dude is not sleeping around anymore. And now he's teaching Bible studies and teaching the word and everything else. See, the thing is, is that could be evidence of a changed heart. That could be evidence of regeneration. That could be evidence of conversion. But also that guy could also be doing that because this is just his new way of showing he's superior. He's smarter than everybody else. Look at how significant I am. See, that's... That's the hard thing. Because all these things that Paul describes that without love makes us nothing are all wonderful and good things. If you read before and after this passage, Paul bookends this prose, this ode to love by calling upon the Corinthians to desire these gifts. But reminding them that without love they're nothing. So now we have the personality of love because we have this reality where, where, where we see that love is central, the necessity of love. Love is commanded. Love is what should mark us and be behind everything we do. We have to ask the question of what's that mean? And Paul interestingly defines love by way of positive description and by way of negation. By saying what love is not. And if you look in your bulletin in 13, 4 through 7, we have this listing. First, I want to look at a few of the, the, the negatives, the descriptions of what love is not. It's really interesting because if you go back and read the rest of 1 Corinthians, everything that Paul says love does not do are things that he confronts the Corinthians for doing. Actually, every negative verb in this list, almost every negative verb in this list, is attributed to the Corinthians somewhere else in this letter. That's why I think that the Corinthians likely did not hear this and say, Aw, that's so beautiful. Like, I think some of them were probably ticked. It says that love does not envy the gifts of others. They don't run around clamoring to try to one-up the next guy by showing that they have greater gifts and greater abilities or have achieved more or more pious or more giving. But it also doesn't boast. It doesn't gloat. It doesn't make themselves feel superior because of what they do or what they've accomplished. It says love is not arrogant. The literal translation is love does not puff up. He said, love does not puff oneself up so that they may seem or feel superior to others, that their identity and worth is how they are greater than someone else. But also, it can mean that love does not puff up the other. 
using flattery and trying to make someone else seem great so that then they can be manipulated and used for your own purposes. It says, love is not rude. Literally, is is not in keeping with good order. Is not orderly. It has this idea that one love does not have doesn't have little concern about how how its actions and how one carries himself will affect and impact others. Essentially, love is not a libertarian. <laughs> and I'm not talking politically here. It has, it has, He's not saying love has a particular political view on the role of the government within this. Like, no, but in the sense of love is not going to say that what I do is what I do and it doesn't matter how it impacts, impacts my brother and my sister and how it carries itself. It says love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Like maybe, for example, if you read in Corinthians, he's saying that love, you know, really would not celebrate somebody following their own heart and their desire by sleeping with their own mother. Because they're following their heart. And I want to note, I'm going to mention this a little bit later, but I think it's important to say this right here. That even though love endures all things, bears all things, is patient. Love does not affirm nor celebrate injustice, abuse, corruption, or perversion. And then you have the positives. But in reality, most of the positives assume a negative element. It says love is patient. The literal translation of patience is that love is far from anger. Slow to wrath. Does not seek revenge. Love endures all things. It's the idea of long-suffering, remaining faithful in the face of being wronged. Embarrass all things. Literally, bears means, in the Greek, means putting up with an annoyance or a hardship. See, love is not depicted here as a positive emotional response to a mutually beneficial relationship, but a gracious concern for the good of the other in spite of our often fallen actions and tendencies in which we hurt each other. If you notice that the negations of love are instances of concern for self over the other and using the other for one's own benefit. But the positives are gracious and patient giving of oneself for the well-being of the other. I really like Jonathan Edwards' kind of pithy, simplistic definition of love. He says, love is placing your happiness in the happiness or well-being of the other. And I think this is why it, it, that it's not wrong to read this at weddings. It's a good reading for weddings. But not so that we can sit there and look at these lovers and be like, oh, isn't love beautiful? <laughs> but instead, because it's a stark reminder that love is not joining yourself to someone because of how they make you feel. Because of what you can get out of them. It's not celebrating love so that then... Your honeymoon and wedding can be your next Instagram post. Or fulfill whatever narrative you think you need to have so that you can be somebody. 
or to fulfill your, your insecure need to be needed by somebody. No, it's joining yourself to another, graciously enduring the mess that accompanies two fallen people recovering from the narcissism inherited from our parents, placing your joy not in what you get out of them, but in their joy and their well-being. But most importantly, what I want to note from this passage in this section, the way Paul writes it, is how Paul is depicting love. Now, so it's kind of lost a little bit in the English here. Um, a lot of it's kind of used as an adjective de- describing love. But actually, every descriptor in this list is a verb. And Paul is actually using a very common Greco-Roman rhetorical form. It's a form and structure that would be used to, to describe the virtues and action, actions of a great man that you should celebrate and emulate. But instead of Julius Caesar... Paul speaks of love. Paul's intentionally personifying love. And I think he's doing so because he has a person in mind. He's showing that Jesus is the embodiment of love. I mean, Jesus was the one who was truly patient. Remember, it means slow to anger not giving revenge. He was the one who was on the cross and he cried out, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jesus did not insist on his own way. He's the one who prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus bore our sins, our fallen frailty, our arrogant rejection and self-righteous ridicule. He did not celebrate wrongdoing, but bore all of our wrongdoing so that he might eradicate it. He endured shame, humiliation, and ultimately death on the cross. And scriptures say, for the joy set before him. A joy he found in glorifying his father and securing our eternal happiness and well-being. And this is why... In the first part, I think Paul wants to emphasize that even if we have well-crafted systematic theology, powerful preaching and biblical teaching, great ministries to the needy and the poor, bold stance standing for traditional biblical ethics, or anything else, if we do not have love, we are nothing. Because as Christ's church, we are, be, are to be marked by Christ who is the fullest embodiment of true love. Jesus, toward the end of his earthly ministry, told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Not they will know you are my disciples by all the good works that you've done. The mission and outreach, the conversions you've had and baptisms you've seen, the churches that you've planted, the theological books that you've written, or anything else. It says, know that you will be known as my disciples by the fact that the love embodied by Christ and shown toward us is manifested in our relation to each other as the church. 
a love that is not captured in two young lovers kissing at an altar, but in a bloodied Messiah hanging on the cross, bearing the fullness of our hate, vitriol, narcissism, insecurity, manipulation, arrogance, abuse, and perversion. So we have the necessity of love, the personality of love. We have to ask the question of what then do we do? I mean, how do we become loving? And I think it's actually a harder question than it may first appear. I mean, how do you will yourself to love? I'm going to use a hypothetical scenario. And it's very, very hypothetical, all right? But let's just say, somehow, Colleen doesn't love me. And it's hard to believe. But like, let's just say that she doesn't love me. Now, she's supposed to love me. She's commanded to love me. But she doesn't love me. And I want her to love me. And if I want that, I can't just say to her, you know what, woman? Um, the Bible says you're supposed to love me. So I want you to get away. And I don't want you to come back until you love me. Like, how well is that going to go? Because the thing is, you can't just kind of go off and then be like, am I loving? No. Okay, you know what I mean? It's like we can't will ourselves to love. No, if I wanted her to love me, I would have to pursue her and love her. I would have to reveal myself to her and so that she can see all of my majesty and how lovable I am, right? That then she would, would love me. And see, that's the challenge of our situation. Because we are all culpable because we did not love God. And because of that, we do not love each other. It's captured in that Augustinian notion of disordered affections as the root of our fallenness. But even though we are culpable and commanded to love God and disobey and love everything but Him, the only solution is for God to pursue us. To come after us. To love us and to woo us. And to reveal himself to us so that we might behold his majesty and glory. That he might make us love. St. John said, we are able to love because God first loved us. St. Paul in his letter to the Romans says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, love is a gift of grace granted to us by God. It's a product of our redemption. It is the result of the gospel. And like faith and hope, love is given to us. But as Paul says later in this passage, faith and hope are temporal. But love is eternal. Why? Because love is part of the very nature of God who is eternal. Faith and hope are gifts that lead us into, um, sorry. Faith and hope are gifts that lead us unto perfection, which is becoming like Christ. But love is our perfection, actualizing the reality that was fully embodied in Christ. I like how the, um, Anglican New Testament scholar N.T. Wright 
summarizes this passage. He says, the point of 1 Corinthians 13 is that love is not our duty, it is our destiny. It is the language Jesus spoke and we are called to speak it so that we can converse with him. It is the food they eat in God's new world and we must acquire the taste for it here and now. It is the music God has written for all his creatures to sing and we are called to learn it and practice it now so as to be ready when the conductor brings down his baton. Brothers and sisters, for now we do see in a mere dimly we love imperfectly. But one day we will behold God face to face. We will see Him perfectly. And in so doing, our love will be perfected. And in our perfected love, we will then be perfect. See, theology without loving is nothing. It can become a vain pursuit of a sense of superiority, a means of recognition, a fulfillment of the incessant need to be right. But I think good theology can cultivate love when it's a deep-rooted reflection on God's beauty and nature, a growing recognition of God's radical love shown to us, when it moves us beyond itself to the one it is referring to. Love is cultivated in us as we encounter God's love, His marvelous grace, and our love is developed as our gaze is fixated upon Him, the one whom will cause us and make us love even though our vision at the moment may be a bit hazy. We can love because he first loved us, and the love imparted to us is refined through continually encountering his love and beholding his majesty. And this is why we gather Sunday after Sunday, even on days when we don't feel it, to repeat many of the same things over and over and over again. Because our corporate worship, our liturgy, is to be a continual and reoccurring reminder of God's love toward us. Reminding us of His grace and His glory. We regularly gather to receive absolution, even though we just confess that we are unworthy to receive it. We come together to be reminded of Christ's sacrifice, and to be spiritually but tangibly united to Christ through the Eucharist. All because these are means through which we are saturated by God's love, and encounter His divine majesty. And honestly, this is why from the pulpit, essentially the same sermon is preached every Sunday. I mean, I guess, like, Ethan changes the stories every so often. I do. But, no, but it's a, it's a beautiful thing, because the, the, essentially the core of every single sermon is the gospel. Why? Because it is through the gospel that our hearts are transformed. It is through the gospel that our love is perfected. It is through being reminded over and over again of God's pursuit and radical love of us that we fall in love with him. And it is through that that we are perfected. It is through that that we will be the church that Jesus redeemed us to be. So without love, all ends up vanity. But love is not a good work we achieve it but it is our defining characteristic that we receive by grace. It's not our duty, but our destiny that is being cultivated in us now as we are continually brought into God's presence and lavished with His love through the reality of the gospel. It is a love that is not self-serving and not defined by a couple romantically involved standing at an altar 
It is a love that goes much deeper, that bears all things, that endures all things, that lasts till the end of time because it is rooted in the one who transcends all time. I want to leave you with this. As I prepared for the sermon, I read a number of of brilliant commentaries, and they're a huge blessing for me to understand this passage and the brilliance and genius of so many scholars that have been a gift to the church. But I, I want to leave, actually, with a reflection of a young boy who I think may understand this passage better than most. This is a snippet of a, of, 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 a, of a journal writing that was written by a 14-year-old boy, a Lebanese boy in 1984, who found himself caught in the midst of the destruction and chaos of a violent civil war. Him and his family had been run out of their family home and their family village and were hiding in a nearby city, trying to find safety. And he wrote this one night as he was reflecting on the hate that was welling up within him because of everything that was happening all around him. What was happening within his society. But he was reflecting on it in light of the Christian call to love. So this is what that 14-year-old boy wrote. One day someone came and told us that our house in the village, my grandfather's house, was looted and burned. The young men burned it after emptying it together. My anguish grew into hatred. Hatred is strange, for it takes many forms. For me, it's like a boil. It took root within me and sowed the seeds of death in my heart. It grew and spread like a boil, with nothing but pus inside. I woke up at the sound of the big guns, and asked myself, how can a young man stand behind a gun and fire all those rockets around us? I thought of that young man, and to me he acquired the face of that other young man who looted and burned my grandfather's house. Then, in the midst of the sound of thundering guns, from the depth of my despair and pain, I finally understood, if I speak with tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am but sounding brass like the empty shell cases of the big guns. Love alone can bear the burden of the living, for it bears all things. It bears this young man who is standing behind the gun and that other young man who burned my grandfather's house. We carry our dead with us like open wounds. All of us have such wounds. Life is different. Life is the realm of love, which overcomes death. They took your life, they could not.